Sorry for being two and a half hours late. I mean, technically, you're not exactly two and a half hours late. You said, Sharice, can you just be on call between nine to noon? Okay, can you not put it that way? It's the only first time it's happened. It's fine. Let me put you on call. Yeah, um, on standby, on standby, that's what it is. It does bestow a level of importance to your job. Yes, it does. Like a doctor. It does. Like, oh, at, at any moment, I could be needed. I did my very best to manage your expectations, though. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. And you estimated your arrival at your apartment, like, on the dot. I was very impressed. Yeah. That was very cool. He, he messaged me and wrote ETA 1130, and then at exactly 1130, sent me a Zoom link for the video call. I took, like, 10 minutes to chill. Uh, I see. I see. Well, it's good. Loose estimation is better. Well done. No, I'm not doing anything anyway. More insight into Sharice's boring life, sitting around on Saturday mornings, waiting for Eugene to call. Sit at home and make content and consume content. Yeah. And make really strong cups of coffee. So I'm a little bit wired, maybe. Just FYI. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Well, on that note, let's get going then. My subject starts with an I. So if this is our new thing. <laughs> if you're unfamiliar, we basically look at the subject title and whoever's title starts first in terms of the alphabetical order, um, then obviously- You know, I forgot the off. system. I feel like if I really wanted to go first- Oh yeah, you for sure lose. Your title today starts with a Y. Yes, but I feel like I could have gamed this system had I remembered that this is what we were doing. Anyway, mm. you begin. I don't care. Okay. I don't care who starts. So my subject is, in Southeast Asia, watchdog accounts call out misspelled and otherwise muddled English language captions. This is a New York Times article. And before I get into it, maybe I can just start with how the how the actual article and story begins. Mm -hmm. Cindy Sandina, an Indonesian beauty influencer, just wanted to know if any of her followers had been to the Japanese city of Himiji. So she posted the question, hands up, who's been to Himiji, Japan? I have no idea if that's her tone of voice, but I don't. I went for it, right? And you then, dove straight in. So after she posted on Instagram, she also included a photo of her with a blue dress. I'm just keeping that in because that's part of how it appeared in the story. and. What's important is that when she said hands up, she added a contraction. So instead of uh, plural hands up, it was like hand is up. Who's been to Himiji? It is hand apostrophe S. Yes. Instead exactly. of just H-A-N-D-S. I guess is that wholly incorrect? I mean. It is incorrect it, in when, her question. Yeah. Okay. It could have been correct if You're, she added a my in front of hand apostrophe. 
S. Yeah. Hey, leave it to Sharice. She's she's got her grammar game on lock. I I think it's hilarious that you picked the subject because right. of the grammar. But thing. anyways, so she received a snarky comment because of that grammatical misstep, and this appears to be part of a broader trend in Southeast Asia, where I mean everyone knows this: the grammar police, people that go around policing those who have poor grammar or make grammatical errors. And then, according to Dennis Toe, who's a marketing and design lecturer at the Management Development Institute of Singapore and a founder of the Influencer Network, an agency with offices in Singapore, he goes on to say that language does indeed matter a lot, and that this is something that increasingly is something influencers need to be aware of in terms of just making sure their communication is on point. However, I have to note that in Singapore, English competency is really high. Mm -hmm. It's like essentially their, it's essentially a national language, isn't it? Yeah. You go to Singapore, and yes, it has its own sort of style. And oddly enough, I just came back from Singapore last night. Virtually everyone speaks English there, and they do it at a very high level. Like, it's not a matter of age either, because in some parts of the world, like whether it's Hong Kong, generally speaking, younger people have a better grasp of English, but you could be speaking to someone who's 65 years old, and they are just as easily to connect with as someone who might be 25 years old. Yeah, whereas in Indonesia... English is not as much of a primary language and can still be considered a second language throughout the country. So this is something that I think on its whole, like there's not that much else to the story. It's more that there's a rise of people that are calling out people's communication skills. There is this Instagram account called at English Busters, which just busts Indonesian social media influencers for poor English grammar. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So the reason why I found this so interesting was there's a lot of different things at play here. First and foremost, it's the idea of actually calling out and trying to correct people's grammar, which obviously leads to better communication, more clear and thorough communication. The second part of it is the branding element, because in Indonesia, English is a second language. Mm -hmm. And even though it might not be at the same operating level as Singapore. People are utilizing English as a way to, I guess, brand themselves and or position themselves in a certain way, even if it might be to their detriment because they they might have grammatical errors, et cetera. They're using the language as a signal of being yeah. legitimate and cool and in the know, even if their grammar is poor. Beyond that, it, it made me think of a, a lot of things because I would say on... The whole, most people's grammar is not great. Yeah. I think you would, I think you would agree, even, even in English speaking countries. And it makes me wonder if we actually have reduced expectations on what to expect from grammar. Hmm. Interesting question. When I see a grammatical error now, maybe in the past, I would think twice about it and I'd be like, oh man, that's like really bad. But then now based on the changing ways in which we communicate, does it really matter if it's grammatically incorrect if the message still comes across? I think if your intention is clear, then it doesn't matter if your grammar is off. And it's only an issue if the grammar choice affects the actual meaning, which could which can happen, right? Like, yes, exactly. The Oxford comma being a great example of when the meaning of a sentence changes. For those who don't know, an Oxford comma is when you have a list of three things, for example, and then it's 
A, B, and C, and you put a comma after item B before the word and. So as the book title, which some of you might know, goes, it's Pandas Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. And so it could mean the panda eats, shoots, and leaves, or it could be the panda ate, shot a gun, and then left, depending on. It's a ridiculous example. I didn't know that was a mainstream example. Is that the one that people usually use? Uh, it's the name of a book about grammar. Oh, hang on. Let me, let me find the author. It's a nonfiction book about grammar by Lynn Truss from 2003. Yeah. Mm, and I think it. part of the reason I remember it is because it's a humorous sentence example. Anyway, to answer your question about grammar, I actually say this in my master's program all the time. So I know that I am lucky because I'm a native English speaker. And so I don't have to worry as much about whether my grammar is correct because I just grew up hearing the language. So I. And speaking English? Yes. And so I intuitively know whether something is correct without having to second guess myself, right? And um, I have classmates who will ask me for advice on grammar or to like look over something they wrote. And I obviously help them, but I also just don't think it's that big, especially because yeah. like I'm in a design program. And so like, it's really your meaning. Like obviously you have to use critical thinking and you need to articulate your idea clearly but you shouldn't just get hung up on whether a comma or apostrophe is in the correct place. That's, that's my thinking. I think that in an increasingly global society, you have to be very mindful of people's ability to communicate in your native language. Because I think that that's generally the sentiment is that you, you have a sort of perception of someone can't speak English properly, but that's your main language. But the reality is that can you speak their language, their mm. native tongue? Yeah. Like that's almost the... The interesting thing, because this is kind of the 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 example that that appears quite frequently. It's like some foreigner goes to a country and they're constantly misunderstood because people there don't speak English, and it's like a frustration that's born out of their inability to connect. But it's also you're in their country, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very obvious example that just laid out. But I think that. Ultimately, it's also being mindful of the audience because in this sort of hierarchy of English capabilities, if people that you're communicating with don't really understand the nuance of grammar, then that's totally fine too, right? Like that becomes actually a non-issue. It's not even a branding issue. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. The second part is I think that understanding whether or not you're breaking grammatical rules for a particular reason. And if it's evident, like that I think is something that's also really important to understand. And I think that's one of the interesting subtleties and nuances around communicating with the written word mm. in terms of if I obviously all caps is the is the simplest, most prevalent example of like typing in all caps. Right. But then also I think that the the obvious common use case of laugh out loud is lol yeah and like sometimes i'll be like l u l z yes and i don't know why but it's like it's kind of an understanding that you're you're already riffing off of something to the point that there's an understood sentiment on the other side i mean there's an understood perspective when, on the other side 
of why someone's doing it. These are like my favorite types of conversations about like, like letter like changers. Right yeah, the, yeah, this one right now about grammar really? and language. Because I think it's so interesting how I can understand you writing L-U-L-Z different from when you type L-O-L or if you do like in all caps, L-O-L-O-L. And it seems like kind of a dumb thing to say. Like if it was 10 years ago, this would this conversation would seem ridiculous. But in our current texting environment, I can tell like a difference in your tone of voice when you type those different versions of laughing out loud. And I, I do think that I do still think that grammar is important. I even though everything I said before about it like not being crucial so long as you can articulate an idea. I don't think, you know, we throw grammar out the window because I do think that you need grammar in the construct of a language for it to hold up. And you have to have like some kind of standards when it comes to like written format. And also because when you have room to play with small things like commas and periods and inflection, then that will carry tone of voice through. In the grammar but i just don't think like for indonesian influencers on instagram that it's that big a deal and i also don't really like the tone of voice that the critical environment at least according to this new york times article like the people who are being critical of their english seem very snarky about it and yeah totally in that story you mentioned at the top so the NY Times reached out to Sandana, Ms. Cindy Sandana, and she said, I was surprised but happy at the same time because I had my clumsiness corrected for me. And that's very sweet of her to be like, oh, like I learned something. And that's kind of the best possible response where... Yeah, actually, I did omit that. You're, you're totally on point. Where maybe some of them do want to improve their English and they welcome being instructed as to the correct grammar. But I think it would be nice if the environment was more about helpfully teaching rather than I'm going to put you down for bad English, because then that's when it becomes what you were describing about English foreigners traveling and then getting like upset that people don't speak English. It becomes yeah, like, oh, I'm better exactly. than you because I have better English. The reason why this was also interesting was trying to understand what role snark plays like for me snark feels as though it only exists for entertainment purposes as i think it's a very sort of selfish type of i guess communication standard i don't i don't even know how to how to put that into into a bucket but snark itself i'm not sure how constructive it ever really is right it's like for a singular person to feel good because uh there's a sense of righteousness around what mm -hmm. they're saying because it's correct and they're obviously they obviously do it in an open environment so that people can be entertained off of it i this gets to like this bigger thing about internet communication which i'm not the first person to say this but it is something i observe which is that sincerity seems to be something that makes you vulnerable online so if you communicate real sincere passion about something or you talk about a subject with earnestness then that makes you kind of ripe for being made fun of 
which kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've just noticed that, and I think that's the case here, too. And there's a little bit of, I think the snark, my interpretation of this article is the snark about the English grammar is not just about the grammar. It's also the content of the captions. I feel the snarkiness is a little bit directed to this influencer sincerity, this excitement about who's been to Himeji, Japan, you know, that like travel excitement. At least that's my interpretation. The article does not say that at all, but I kind of see a little bit of it. I also had a few more questions. This one being, does grammar really matter to some people? So in my experience, the people to whom grammar matters the most are the people who don't have good grammar. So earlier when I said the thing about like my classmates wait, asking- Wait, really? Yes, because- I wait, don't wait, wait agree with that. So when I was talking about my classmates and how they asked me to read over their material and I say like, don't stress out about it, it's fine. They get really caught up about having good grammar. And they are also really conscious of their English seemingly not being good enough to speak publicly in group situations. And I think that is like a huge detriment, but I also really try to empathize with like their position. Because if I was in an all Chinese speaking school, I would also feel extremely uncomfortable with my Chinese level. Like to them, to them, their lack of proficiency really matters to them, to themselves. But basically you're saying that it's not like everyone with bad grammar cares. It's just that the ones that do care the most happen to have what they deem to be less than adequate grammar. They're the ones that think about it. Like, like for me, I guess objectively you could say my grammar is good, but I don't. It doesn't matter to me in the sense where I get upset with people for having poor grammar. But I think the people who are hardest on themselves are those who perceive themselves to not be good enough. I mean, grammar in essence is only really valuable and a great signal to other people that do respect it, right? Well, no, because... Because if you didn't have solid grammar, then you wouldn't be able to identify what was poor grammar. So I don't think that's true. I think there is a degree of grammar where it's more evident than hand apostrophe s. But it also mm. becomes complicated when you talk about spoken English because it gets mixed up with the accent you use to speak English and you know the confidence with which you speak it. And then it's not mm. tied just directly to grammar itself, but it's tied to having English as a second language and being a foreigner, essentially. Does that make sense? Like, I think the concern is wider. The grammar is kind of looking at it from a, like a smaller level. And then the bigger picture is this like concern, well, where I am now in London, where foreigners feel like I'm not proficient in this country's language. And so I don't feel comfortable. I will never feel totally comfortable blending in and being a part of their culture. Yeah. Grammar as like a way to gain entrance. The thing that I want to end off on is that I actually think that grammar will probably be increasingly less important. I don't think it'll become more important. And my reason for that is the ways of communicating have far exceeded just writing. Yeah. Whether it's emojis, whether it's photos, GIFs, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Memes. Like memes in the sense that uh obviously effective meme writing is more often than not simple 
mm-hmm. which means there's less complexity and less room to make a mistake when it comes to grammar. Yeah, but I think you're totally right that grammar is only going to become. Um, I don't wouldn't say less important. I would say grammar will become more fluid and flexible, which is kind of saying、mm-hmm. the same thing, but just in a different angle. It's just to say that there aren't going to be like rigid structures applied to writing. Like if you think about that format of writing, where it's like the clapping emoji between each word, that's a kind of grammar. It's like a new grammar. It's like the clapping emoji as some kind of comma period. Yeah, which is that's right. So fascinating. Or, or like I often sign off with. Oh, this is like too much information about texting. But I sign off with my girlfriends a lot with like the like the two hearts, the two pink hearts emoji, and that's kind of like signing off with an XO, except using the two pink hearts emoji instead.、Uh, that's the direction the world is heading in. Should we move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right. My subject is YouTube overhauls its problematic verification program, and this is also interesting because after I shared it with you, there was another announcement from YouTube, which I actually didn't message you about, so I don't know if you've seen it. But this is like the first time it's oh, like, oh, there is another update. So if I understand correctly, this piece of news broke not even that long ago. No,、like、two days it ago, it broke September nineteenth. So yeah, so like literally two days ago. Literally two days ago, for、But、those of you. But then something else was updated yesterday, even more recently. Yesterday. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's what、oh, I'm、yeah. saying. Yeah. So what happened is September 19th, YouTube announced an overhaul of their verification program that would involve a new visual look as to what verification looks like and new eligibility requirements. So what verification looks like is the little check mark that you get. At the end of your username, and you know, Twitter and Instagram have these too, like these little badges, and they're all check marks. They all use these check marks. Previously, since YouTube's launch of verification, anyone who had over a hundred thousand subscribers could then be verified without any real further investigation. They would just apply for it after they went over a hundred thousand, and it would essentially be given to them. And the problem with this is quite evidently that this system can be gamed. You can buy subscribers. You can use bots. Like there's not a lot of thorough review of this process. So YouTube announces that it's overhauling their verification program because they want to quote protect c- creators from impersonation and address user confusion. And they're saying that every year they receive thousands and thousands of requests regarding impersonation. So, for example, 
let's say you are Beyonce. And I assume there are so many fan channels for Beyonce. That's like Beyonce official fan club 1010. You get the idea. And so the, all of those other channels can't get verified and only the Beyonce official channel would get verification. Okay. The other problem that they were trying to combat is that nearly 30% of YouTube users misunderstand the badge's meaning and they associate it with endorsement of content rather than indicator of identity. So what this means, which I'm sure you've also experienced, is that people perceive verification as a validator of goodness, as in this is good stuff, rather than being a validator of reality, as in this is the real Beyonce. Yeah, I think that we're kind of at the fork in the road now where we give out blue checks to individuals we can identify, right? But we also do it to companies. And I think that that is the one thing that's starting to become a little bit more murky is if a company has a blue check, what does that mean versus an individual with a blue check? Yeah. And do they mean the same thing? Yeah, it's really unclear. And also the use of all the platforms of using a blue check is also, I think, confusing because this gets into, I think, all of us not having this real uh, understanding of the need for verification of identity. Okay. Like if you post as Eugene, which you are, right? You post as Eugene can. I just assume, I know that it's the real Eugene can posting. So I don't, like, I don't think about, oh, what if this is a false Eugene can account? And so if you had a blue check, even though I feel like I'm a logical person, it kind of subliminally signals to me something else about you that is not about the reality of your identity. It signals, oh, Eugene is a popular person. He's Mm -hmm. um, widely followed. It signals all these other things about yourself that are not related to the fact as to whether or not you're the real Eugene can, except that platforms want to use it as a verification of identity instead of popularity. But I really feel like that is just fighting against what everybody else thinks. Like they said over nearly 30% of people confuse it as meaning endorsement rather than identity. But I would I would feel confident saying that even more people mix the two. So even logical people who know that it means identity subliminally also think of it as popularity and goodness. Okay, anyway, back to the news, though that is one part of this I found really interesting. Um, YouTube announces on the 19th, they're overhauling it, new look, new eligibility requirements. And basically they suggest they start sending out emails warning creators that have previously been verified that they are no longer going to be verified. And the reason behind this is because YouTube decided that they're, I'm just going to quote them. It's important that viewers know the channel they are watching is the official presence of the creator, artist, public figure, or company that it represents, okay? So with mm-hmm. that in mind, they decided out of all of these verified people, there are these users where that's not a concern. You know, they're not being impersonated. There's no risk of people being confused about whether this is mm-hmm. the real channel. And so they remove 
they email users saying, we're going to remove your verification. Okay. And then the YouTube mm-hmm. community goes crazy like two days ago, like two nights ago when they start getting these emails and people are like, there's a whole range of reactions, you know? YouTube is so dumb, like I can't believe I'm losing my verification to verification is stupid anyway and it shouldn't matter, blah, 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 blah. So then what happens yesterday is that YouTube essentially backtracks the entire thing and they say it's so much like the initial way it worked that there is almost like no discernible difference. Thinking from a backlash perspective, losing that verification, does that effectively compromise your ability to make money? I would assume like that's probably why, or do you think it's more of an ego thing? See, that is the problem. Like on one hand, I understand YouTube's original plan. Like I do think it's important that we as a general public are more versed on, you know, identity verification and whether someone is the real thing or not. But the problem is that they also have not fixed their algorithm, which favors verified accounts. So you either need to use the verification as just verification, or you need it not to be linked to reality of identity. Because, okay, the problem here, this is the example I wrote in the notes. I don't know if you see it. I'm just going to go for the extreme example because it illustrates it. And we're going to talk about Nazis for a little bit of time. Okay. So you're familiar with David Duke? No, I'm not. I feel comfortable, I think, talking about this on a public podcast. So David Duke is a American white supremacist and white nationalist. And he's a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And these are known facts about him. Okay. And Mm so. Oh, yeah. I think I'm familiar now that you mention it. Like I, the name sounded very familiar, but yeah, now I definitely. Yeah, well, you also didn't know it where definitely I was. Rings a bell. You don't. You didn't know where I was heading with this. Yeah. So, if David Duke had a YouTube channel, then YouTube should verify him after you know proper review, as this is the real David Duke, because then users would know this is the the David Duke in real life posted this content, and these are, you know, the things that he wants to share. Problem. With that is that the YouTube algorithm favors verified accounts. So even though they should tell you this is the real David Duke, the IRL David Duke, they should not be promoting his content in their algorithm. So that's where this problem lies and why there was I why I see that there was this backlash because these YouTube creators who do perfectly innocent things, like hey, like they're I'm not saying that, you know, all the YouTube creators who are upset have like extremist views. These YouTube creators, their concern is like, okay, you've yanked my verification and I accept that, you know, I'm not Beyonce. I'm not like this super famous person outside of YouTube. But the problem is that when you yank my verification, that means I'm going to get less views. I'm going to appear, you know, further down in search results. So you either need to overhaul your entire system or like we don't think it's fair that you're yanking verification. Do you think that this whole need to yank verification also comes down to the need to, I guess, discern what is real and fake news? Like, do you think this is in some ways a trickle down from the problematic political landscape? Oh, definitely. Oh, a hundred percent. 
Like, they need to find a way. YouTube and all platforms are trying to find ways to distance themselves from problematic content, okay? Content that is racist and extremist and, you know, harmful and dangerous, okay? Like, that stuff exists. Our platforms are trying to distance themselves from that. And they've had a lot of trouble in the past with just outright banning this content because then those creators come out and say, you're infringing on our freedom of speech. I think behind the scenes, this YouTube verification overhaul is, was, a, was part of a str larger strategy to like combat this extremist stuff on their platforms, but they just didn't. They are trying to balance what their healthy community wants, the, the friendly creators, what they want, and you know this need to control the bad stuff. I don't have I don't really have a solution here. I'd be interested to know if you can think of something. The challenge is that verification came at a time when it was very simple and innocent, right? We need to verify someone's identity, which I think was the general premise. But then soon what happened was verification came to and this is what I made and this is the point I made at the beginning too was it soon came to represent just something of scale and size because mm -hmm. you could be a meme account and for whatever reason, people started copying you and this was a way for you to cut through the noise and let people know you're the original or whatever. That's a way of looking at it because sometimes I do come across some accounts. I'm like, why does this have a verification? Like, mm -hmm, why does it mm -hmm, need mm -hmm, the verification, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. I think that was the slippery slope that soon opened the floodgates and you you basically kind of fucked yourself because you were unable to really create a very clear set of parameters you as mean to YouTube. what entailed verification. Yeah. I think in general, across oh, platforms. all social yeah. media. But not yeah. creators. So this... When you say they they um I'm trying to not swear. <laughs> when you say that they messed up, you're referring to the platforms messed up, not the individual creators. Yeah, no, no. I think the creators are just looking out for themselves, etc. That's totally fine, but I do think that it was, it's the, it's a challenge that comes with entering the wild, wild west, which was the internet at the time, mm -hmm. and trying to create some sort of framework, but then also understanding that, hey, this is such a new space that we have yet to fully understand all the different use cases and all the things that could potentially happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, think that the, the original rules are not relevant to today. Let's put it that way. Definitely. But the problem is that any changes they make have to deal with evolving the rules that they established in the past. I, I really just, I personally do not think they should have backtracked. I assume that YouTube internally had like lots of discussions about verification and what they should do. And someone must have said, hey, like there's going to be some backlash. And then they still decided like we're going to, you know, forge on through the backlash. Like this is important. And the fact that literally 24 hours after their initial announcement, they just like, oh, we're too scared of all of you. Like, it's just, it's just, it's really frustrating to me that they would do that rather than to like stick to making a change. I actually think what they could have done, this is, I guess I did think of a solution, is that they give you, give users something that does signal scale and popularity. Okay. So there's like two different things. There's one thing this like verification or whatever we want to call it that says 
Beyonce is the real IRL Beyonce Knowles. You know, David Duke is the real IRL David. There's that that says this is a real mm-hmm. person. And then there's something else like, I don't know, the gold award or like a platinum trophy that says like this person has 500,000 subscribers or whatever, the, whatever metric they want to use to indicate popularity. And then maybe that because a meme account really does not need verification. There's no way of saying, oh, this meme account is the real meme account. The meme account just came up on YouTube and became popular within YouTube. So there's like no real need to say this is the real IRL meme account. The way I look at it is perhaps you need to rely on some sort of outside form of validation that needs to be brought into the social network space. So like if you have a a trademark, if you have a business registration, mm. then that soon becomes the validator because if you're not that serious about it and you don't need this verification. I kind of see that as getting in the way of independent point, creators. Right? I just don't I think feel like that's I just don't point. think they need verification. Like I just don't, don't think that's mm, the purpose. I think verification is literally just to say that like specific individuals who are already famous or like let's say you use a political person like Joe Biden, okay? Like that this yeah. is a real Joe Biden who's you know way Joe Biden way predates the existence of YouTube like as a person. So when he opens a YouTube account, we're saying oh this is the real person now on YouTube. But yeah. If you had like a 14-year-old girl who makes slime, the gooey stuff, right? And she gets like, uh, I don't know, she just blows up and gets million views and you know, tens of thousands of subscribers. There is no need to say this 14-year-old girl is the real 14-year-old girl. But you have seen that people that are popular often have fake accounts pop up. So I think that's that's justifiable to combat that, in my opinion. That's, but what I'm saying though is like, I just there don't know. There has to be some kind of distinction between like these two entities that I'm talking about. You know, like Joe Biden, the presidential candidate, and the 14 year old girl who makes the slime account mm-hmm. that becomes viral. And that's why I was saying it's like maybe it's giving them two different kind of things that distinguishes between the two. And I I don't know. I mean, I didn't. We didn't want really double down into the Nazi issue, but I also don't think that this verification business, especially because they walked it back, is going to fix it. Yeah. It's going to fix the issue of like extremist content. Yeah, one question I had on a bigger level is, I don't, I don't even know if this, this is not really a literate question. <laughs> I'm just going to read it anyway. I wrote, how has our relationships with platforms become so complicated? And why do we expect platforms, et cetera, to police accounts? It's, it's a question that has an obvious, albeit complex answer. And the, the obvious answer is that platforms themselves are so intertwined with our lives. That's the easy, easy side of things, right? The more complex side of things is the role it has played in altering and shifting social dynamics. Mm. And I think that that responsibility that I don't, it's not like they took on that responsibility, but given the power and impact they have, I think that the the ball of responsibility has been put into their court and they really have to figure out how to manage it 
Like I think that's the that's the beginning. That's the tip of the iceberg. But it's such a complex thing. Is in that how do you figure out what that actually means? Like there's so many things. There's so many different use cases, and you know, we, we we could probably break down several different verification reasons and use cases mm-hmm. that are relevant to this person, but not relevant to that person. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you write a clean set of rules for everybody? And you can't really. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just how we got here because, like you said, you know, platforms became a really part of our social fabric, and one hundred percent when bad things appear on platforms like let's just continue with the nazi example we as society get upset with the platform for authoring that material sometimes more than we get upset with the actual nazi like we feel that this person is saying this stuff and the person who's responsible is actually the platform that they're using to publish it and that's that that's not what any of the platforms want for themselves but that that's just how it's gone mm-hmm. like you, i liked what you said like we put we as is in society we put the ball of responsibility in the court of the platforms so they have to respond and i, I mean yeah. they they could say you know we're not going to do anything but i assume the backlash would be just like enormous i don't know if i really mentioned this but i feel like i should clarify so the walk back means that channels that already have the verification badge are going to keep it, okay? In the past, all channels that go over 100,000 subscribers can still apply, but they will review, this is literally what they said. Going forward, we'll review those channels to verify their identity. If we determine that a channel is attempting to impersonate, we won't verify that channel and may take additional action. And it says that they have different like factors for verification of authenticity and completeness. But like you said, it is pretty vague. It's not a clean set of rules. One more thing to wrap this up is the language that platforms use is really unclear, which is actually an interesting tie into your subject about grammar. I think the words verification and authenticity are extremely unclear because those two words we use them to mean you know this is objective factual reality but we also use it to mean you know this is good and of quality content so weirdly i think what i'm gonna say here is like the opposite of the grammar conversation where platforms need to adopt language that is more hardline and less fuzzy which can mean too much a variety of things yeah i think that's all pretty pretty on point it's probably a good place to end things off for today i'm really pleased that i found a way to link mine and yours at the very end there why is that so important you think hmm. i guess it feels good that an episode has like cohesiveness in some way though there were other themes we did talk about mainly platforms and influencers yeah why is it important yeah i think just like episode cohesion for my own peace of mind i don't know if people care Oh, yeah, before we cap things off for today, some pretty exciting news, I guess. Yeah, it was cool. I was pretty psyched about it. Yeah, so Charisse and I and Making It Up was featured on Anchor's How I Podcast series. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. Thank you. That's why you're my co-host. Yeah, just filling in the, the sentences. Exactly. So Anchor yeah. is the service we use to publish Making It Up quite a while 
I was so relieved to switch from our previous service without naming names. Use Anchor is just, a, this was not paid for, by the way, but Anchor is a lot easier to use and it's just made the process really painless. They reached out yeah. to us to contribute to this How I Podcast series, which was also nice just to answer some questions about, you know, why we started this and why we keep doing it. Yeah, it's nice to get some sort of outside validation, I guess. I mean, ultimately for me, I'll be very honest, like I don't really do things for validation, but I do want more people to know about it, mm. right? So I don't really care about Anchor giving me a pat on the back, but I do care about the distribution of Anchor mm-hmm. and the ability for more people to see it. I mean, I just liked being given this opportunity to like reflect on some questions and then you know, something we say might be useful to someone else. And like what you said, you know, more people who hear about making it up, the better. Yeah, I hope the, the team at Anchor doesn't take that the wrong way. But yeah, I mean, we've, we generally do this because we want more people to know about what we do. If they listen to even just else. more than one episode of this, then I think they know the kind of person that Eugene is. Yeah, you know what? This is actually a good segue into something I was thinking about was Sometimes I wonder if my apathy for certain things just gets in the way. I was talking to my friend Jordan about this. I'm like, honestly, there's things I care immensely about, but there's a lot of things I don't care about. And the things I don't care about, if that apathy ever gets in the way. Hmm. Gets in the way of what? Like the things you do care about, maybe in the end, they're actually not as important as you think. They're important to you, but maybe they're not that important. But the things that you are pushing to the wayside might actually be more important. Yeah, that's a possibility. But you have to make a decision, right? Like, I know you, maybe more than some people, have apathy towards many things. So you've decided there's this large swath of the world that you're just going to remain apathetic about, okay? But also the reality is that like as individuals, we cannot care about everything. We just like don't have the emotional or physical bandwidth Bandwidth. yeah, to do that. Um, So I don't know. I mean, we all have to make some kind of selection. I can't tell you if your selection is correct. I mean, there's like some things I think you should care about, like your family and your wife, you know, like that's a good place to start. But I already know that you do care about those things. And then, like, if, you know, we decided to not care, if one day we were like, you know, we're just not going to talk about media anymore, then I don't know, yeah. that's kind of fine to me. Not not to say that that was a forecast. I, I don't think that you or I are going to stop talking about media anytime soon. I don't think so either. I don't know. I, th- I kind of wish I was apathetic about more things. I have to walk this back, too, because in general, this whole... It's a relative thing because I definitely think I care about a lot of things and I've seen people that have much more simple lives really embrace the whole ignorance is bliss thing. And it's, I think it's pretty, I do say this without sounding like an asshole, but like it's, it's nice when you can be in that position. Mm-hmm. I mean, me with a, yeah. with a furrowed brow over here trying to make sure I don't. Okay. No, I can help you out because Joan and I have talked about this before. And we do think that if we could just be, uh, now I'm like you. How do I say this more PC? How do you say this without sounding like an asshole? If we didn't think so much about things, then we would be happier people. But it's true. It's really true. Uh, If we didn't 
think about climate change and the climate crisis, we would be happier people if we could somehow convince ourselves to not care about it and that it doesn't matter to us as individuals. It's right. just that like we I just I don't have that capability to not think about it and to like not have that matter to me. In light of last week, what's the one thing that surprised you or you learned this past week? You know what's funny is that I prepared for this, but now I've forgotten. Sure, Reese. I knew, I knew you were going to ask me. I knew you were going to ask me. And then I was like, let me think of something in advance. And yet somehow here I am now because I didn't write it down. I'm just getting old. Um, oh, I know. I remember. So it's London Design Week right now. Okay. And that just kind of means that like a lot of large variety of design events are happening at the same time across the city. And they're like kind of loosely gathered together under this umbrella, like London Design Week. So one of my friends is helping out with the Taiwanese Ministry of Culture's exhibition. So the actual you know, governmental Ministry of Culture from Taiwan decided, you know, we're going to hold this exhibition in London. It's going to be about Taiwanese album cover design. So about like music design the visuals that accompany music design, which is pretty cool. And actually the exhibition is quite good. But the thing that I wanted to talk about is my friend told me on their opening night, there, it was really full of people, like 100 plus, 120 to 30 people in a small gallery. And so the turnout was really great. But there were, the crowd was mostly East Asian and Taiwanese, which is not what the Ministry of Culture wanted. The reason they were holding this Taiwanese event in London in the first place is because they wanted to like, you know, spread their culture, to share their culture. And this was really a flaw in marketing and distribution. And so I thought you would find that really interesting. And it's just, it's like, it can exist, the exhibition exists and it's great, but it just is not reaching the right people. Or they didn't put enough effort into like finding out how they could have it reach the right people. The right people in their mind that they wanted to reach. Okay, this is what I've learned as of late. I think what I've okay. learned is the need to just actively recognize what you're not good at or what you feel you need to be better at and just do it. Like Was if you this care enough to about something it, that happened um, in your life? Yeah, I think it's just more like where career rise or whatever like where you are what are skills that you want to learn and not necessarily knowing how to do it but just knowing that you care enough about it to get better at it and i think the attitude behind wanting to get better is in many ways all you really need because i mean whether or not you'll be a, a, a whether or not you'll be an expert tomorrow probably not but at the same time I just think that, you know, the things that I've cared a lot about in recent times have pushed me to just like tackle it head on. And I can objectively say between now and when I started, like I've, I've become way more comfortable, whether I'm better. This is another side thing too, is that what you are objectively good at versus what you feel comfortable Mm -hmm. and how you communicate to people, I actually think that if you can personally exhibit comfort around a subject, this sounds terrible, but like I think that that in itself is half the battle when you're working with other people. Yeah. So whether or not you're good or bad, no one, I think that's the kind of 
beauty of working in the creative space in that a lot of it's intangible before becoming tangible. And in that process of intangibility or like just figuring shit out, it actually comes down to just comfort versus, oh, like, does it actually need to be objectively the best? No, not really, because what you want it to be, and even if you can't achieve that, it's actually not a big deal because no one else is looking at the same thing you're looking at. I think what's fascinating to me is that this was not linked to anything in particular that happened this week. Oh, no, it was. I guess it was. I mean, it was like the story that we did with Empirical Spirits where I I had to do the whole thing, right? Like, I actually, it was the only story I think I've ever done where I did from start to finish. I did the interview. I did the photos. I did the editing. I did the mixing for the story, etc. That's true. That's a good point. This just helps me understand like where you're coming from a lot better. It's not just like an abstract thought in your mind. Yeah, I mean, also, it's a great story. Thank you. So congratulations, because you <laughs> uh, just- Thank you, Sharice. It, it is kind of remarkable. You really did do 100% of that story. And that almost, that's, I don't think that's ever happened. At yeah. Making where someone did all of the work on it. But so, it's not that well, hard, well I would say, if you are able to do it. Like, you have all the parts to do it. So, I mean, no, don't say that it's not that hard. Doesn't that, I mean, like, to you me, have to, okay. No, okay, hold but on, have, hold on. I have to say that after I've done it, I feel like it's not that hard. Because I, I, like, put myself through the ringer, and I'm like, oh, shit, like, and I made it through, and I cared enough to make it better, and now, like, I'll, it's like riding a, it's not like riding a bicycle, but I now know what it's like to achieve a certain level. Because another thing too is like, we also felt the need to just start editing our own podcast, right? Okay, but what I'm saying about saying it's not that hard is I just don't know if that language is like helpful to people because when you say that something is not difficult enough times, doesn't it devalue that kind of work? It does. It probably does actually. And in this case, if you say that, if you say that doing... And I understand where you're trying to come from, that like actually you found out, you know, I can be comfortable and confident in these skills. But to say that like, oh, all of these things, interviewing, photographing, recording, writing the script, narrating, publishing, was not that hard. If we say that on the record, doesn't it devalue like all of that kind of work? But does it matter though? Yes, it does. Why does it matter if it's devalued? Like it's, I mean... Because we have to get paid for it. Not just like me and you, like Eugene and Sharice, but like as an entire creative body. Yeah, it's, it's not that hard for me, but it doesn't we, mean... Oh God, it's real. It's a, it's a balance. It, I think that there's a difference between whether something's hard or not and whether you, what price you put on it. Because I, I, I would walk... I would also... I, I think I need to add some context because I think that it's not hard because I've also done maybe sections and pieces of that whole process but i've never strung it together like i've strung it together for this story i think to be specific for empirical spirits this story what you found is that it turned out to not be so difficult to be in charge from start to finish but the skills required to do all of that is didn't happen overnight yeah that's 100 of many years of you like working you know the jobs that you do I don't I think, know. I'm just okay. trying to be more conscious about like how we talk about creative yeah. labor. 
you say labor, but I, I like to look at it from a bigger picture where it's not hard because of maybe all the years and expertise or whatever that you've amassed, right? And I liked, I want to get in a position where you're educating people that if I solved your problem in 10 minutes, doesn't mean you only pay me for 10 minutes of work. Like, I think that that's the, that's the one thing that maybe I didn't communicate clearly enough was that I don't care if it takes me 10 seconds or 10 hours to do this job for you. I have a price in my mind because I believe it's based off of everything. And I, and I think you and I agree, like, we don't want to be in a position yeah. where we charge people based off of actual time. And I, you know what, I, I think that different circumstances are different. Like, I know you have taken jobs where you're getting paid on time, even though your, your expertise is probably in excess of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I both agree with you, but think that there is just a challenge in communication because if you say, if you say to a client or if clients get the idea that creatives think that a specific job is not that hard, then they immediately think that then it shouldn't cost that much. And it's really hard to communicate that the reason that this job is not that this particular job that I'm doing for you at this moment in time is not that hard is because I have 10 years of experience of doing the job. So it's just like not, I, I, in my past, when I used to freelance more with a greater variety of clients, I wouldn't ever say to them, oh, that's easy. Like that will take me 10 minutes because that's super not helpful to me getting paid fairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. And and maybe it's just different because it's an editorial project versus like a commercial project. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad that you mentioned something that was both what you learned and also helpfully advertises a story that we published. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Good job. Okay. Let's cap things off. Yeah, that's a good place to end things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>